missions. Well, this morning we're back in Philippians chapter 1. We're going to continue studying Paul's letter. We're going to look at a, a fairly short passage this morning, but a really powerful one. Now, we're a very academic church. A lot of you are teachers and professors, so you may already be aware of this, but right around 475 years ago of really famous, as it turns out, man named Nicholas Copernicus turned the world upside down. He wrote a book that literally turned our perception of the world upside down. He mathematically proved that the earth is not the fixed center of the universe around which everything else spins, that instead the earth is revolving around the sun. And you already know that, so you're thinking, come on, people. Why did you think that? Well, for millennia, people did. For millennia, the human race assumed we were at the center of the universe, the one fixed point, everything spinning above us. And here comes Copernicus, and he proves, no, that's not the case. And that was radical. That was incredible. It turned the world upside down. It changed how people understood their lives and their place in the universe. Well, this morning, the passage that we're going to read is meant to do the same thing for us. It's meant to turn our world upside down so that we can see life in a new way, a more accurate way. So really powerful passage. Look with me. It's short. We're going to read it together. Verses 12 through 18 of chapter 1 of Philippians. It says, Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole praetorian guard and to everyone else, and that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Now some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress and my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Now, this section of the letter, this is actually really common to put this kind of thing at the beginning of an ancient letter. Paul's talking about his circumstances. So usually at the beginning of the letter, you'd tell people, hey, here's where I am. Here's what I'm doing. Here's what's going on in my life. You do the same in the letters that you write, assuming you write letters anymore. You tell people what's up with you. So that's what Paul's doing. But Paul can go a little off the rails here because actually the Philippian church already knew where he was. They already knew his circumstances in life. They knew that he was in prison in Rome. So they're already familiar with his circumstances. So Paul takes this opportunity, rather than rehearse circumstances they already know, he takes this opportunity to reinterpret his circumstances so that they can see them in a new and more accurate way. I, I think Paul was worried. I think he was worried that the Philippians would look at these painful circumstances in his life. Here he is in prison in the city of Rome, and they would arrive at very negative conclusions about what God was doing. They would be very worried, and Paul doesn't want them to misinterpret what's going on in his life. And so he takes this moment to turn things around, to reinterpret his circumstances so that they can see them through a new lens and a new Way And the big idea is right there in verse 12. Paul wants them to understand my circumstances, meaning prison, have actually turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. So this is ironic. You would think Paul's in prison. This is bad. Paul says, no, actually, it's working out for good. Paul wants them to understand, actually, imprisonment is not working out for bad. It's working out for great good. Now, notice Paul defines what good means because 
if you were to ask the average American, like, what circumstances in life are good? Like, how would you describe good circumstances? It's kind of a weird question. They might look at you funny, but if they gave you an answer, what would they say? Well, probably good circumstances are those that are pleasant, those that are comfortable, those that make me feel nice, those that bring me money or whatever it might be. That's what most of us think. Good circumstances in life are those that are comfortable and pleasant. Well, Paul's definitely not comfortable right now. He's in prison. Life isn't comfortable at all for him. So that's not what he means by good. What Paul means by good, good circumstances are those that advance the gospel. It's as simple as that. For Paul, it's very black and white. If my circumstances, if my situation, if the people in my life help me to advance the gospel, to share it with more people who don't know Jesus, then those circumstances are good. That's how he defines good, that which helps him to share the gospel. Now, that shouldn't entirely surprise us. Because for the last few weeks that we've been going through this letter, we've talked about what our one occupation in life is. What, what is the one reason that God has left you on this planet instead of taking you now to heaven? Because you'll worship better in heaven and the Bible will make more sense to you in heaven. And you won't even have to pray in heaven because you'll just talk face to face with God. So why has he left you here? Well, for this one reason, to help people find and follow Jesus. That's the one reason you're on this planet is is to share the gospel, to share Jesus with people in words and in deeds so that they can come to know and follow him. And so if that's how Paul sees life, that our one occupation is sharing the gospel, then for Paul, things are good if they help him to do that. Circumstances are good if they help him to share the gospel with people who don't yet know Jesus. And so this situation in his life has worked out for good. That's a little surprising when you think about it, because here we have Paul, maybe the greatest evangelist ever, and we've thrown him in prison. He's under arrest. So you would think that would be bad for the gospel. You take this great evangelist, you imprison him. Now the gospel can't go forward. You would think this would be bad. It had not turned out for bad. God had flipped things around, taken something that seemed bad, and used it for great good. And Paul explains why in verses 13 and 14. Why has the gospel gone forward even though he's in prison the first reason is in verse 13 so here's the first and both of these are meant to surprise us to kind of shock us verse 13 my imprisonment in the cause of christ has become well known throughout the whole praetorian garden to everyone else so the first reason why paul being in prison has been good for the gospel is because his imprisonment in the cause of christ has become well known now in the cause of christ what paul's saying is i'm not in prison because i'm a criminal I'm in prison because I've been faithful to Jesus. Now, a little bit of background. Why is Paul getting thrown in prison for being faithful to Jesus? Because he's a Jew. And Jews who did not follow Jesus really hated Jews who did. They saw Christianity as a threat to their religion and their culture. And so they got those Christian Jews in trouble with the Roman authorities. And so Paul is in prison because he was publicly faithful to Jesus. And his point isn't that he's in prison. It's that everyone knows he's in prison for Jesus. And particularly talks about the Praetorian Guard, a little background. That's 9,000 elite soldiers who lived in Rome and their job was to protect the emperor. So they're kind of like our secret service, except they get to carry swords. Their primary job is to protect the emperor, but they had a few other smaller duties, one of which was to guard prisoners in Rome on house arrest. That's Paul. Paul is not in a dungeon. He's in a small house, but he's being guarded by the Praetorian Guard. And how they would guard a prisoner under house arrest, they would shackle a guard to that prisoner at all times, 24 hours a day. 
The guards would rotate every four hours. A new guard would show up and be shackled to the prisoner. That sounds horrible to me. Um, I'm an introvert and being shackled to somebody 24 hours a day, that's like introvert nightmare. I would be so annoyed. You'd never have privacy. Never, not for a second, would you be alone. You would never have privacy at all. I would hate that. Paul loved it. What is Paul thinking? Captive audience. I have somebody stuck to me who probably doesn't want to be here. Someone who would never come to my church, but they can't go anywhere because the emperor has chained them to me. So for Paul, he is an evangelist heaven because he gets a new guy who would never come to church chained to him every four hours. And it's for us, we have a hard time sharing the gospel like once a month. For Paul, he's getting to do it every four hours. And it's really easy to get into a gospel conversation because like, what's the first question that guy's going to ask? Why are you here? And he's going to get to say, well, because I believe in in this guy who died for our sins and rose from the dead. And boom, he's off and running into the gospel with a new person every four hours. And it had an incredible effect. All of these soldiers who would have never heard about Jesus are hearing about Jesus. They're hearing this amazing story from from this guy who is not bitter and, and angry and upset like every other prisoner. Instead, he's passionate to tell them about Jesus. He cares about them. That is so amazing to them that they share the news with all these other soldiers. And if you do the math, there's no way that 9,000 soldiers all took a turn guarding Paul. Yet all 9,000 had heard about him. Why? Because the soldiers who did guard Paul, this was probably the first prisoner they had ever been shackled to who did not beg for release. He did not complain. He was not angry. He actually cared more about them than he did himself that stunned them to the to the point that maybe the few hundred who took a turn guarding paul told every other one of the praetorian guard all nine thousand of them about this amazing jew who says a guy rose from the dead and it's so amazing that he's now content and loving and joyful even though he's in prison that's crazy it's such an amazing story that the verse ends with paul saying everyone else has heard who is everyone else Everyone else, like the whole of Rome, was abuzz with this incredible news about this prisoner who is unlike any other prisoner because he really believes God loves us. And so Paul looked at prison as an incredible evangelistic opportunity to get the good news of Jesus spread throughout the city of Rome. So that's the first reason that this thing that seems so bad has worked out for a very good reason. Thousands of people who would have never come to church are hearing about Jesus. Second reason that this thing has worked out for good is verse 14. So look at that, verse 14. Paul says, Most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. But Paul's saying, brethren, other Christians here in Rome, they are responding to my persecution with courage. They hear that I'm in prison and they want to step up and, and fill my shoes and share the gospel throughout Rome. And that's, that's kind of surprising too, because you would think if you throw the leader of a movement into prison, all of his followers are going to scatter in fear, right? Makes sense, but that's not what happens. Instead, you throw the leader of a movement in prison and all of his followers say, let's follow his example. 
Let's share the gospel boldly. That, that actually has happened a lot in the history of the church. There was a lot of persecution in the first 350 years of our existence. The church was persecuted by both Jews and Gentiles. Many died. Many were slaughtered because of their allegiance to Jesus. Around the 3rd century, that led one of our leaders, a guy named Tertullian, leader of the early church, to say, In the blood of the martyrs lies the seed of the church. And what he meant by that, in the blood of the martyrs lies the seed of the church. What he was saying is the the Roman authorities who persecute us, they don't realize. The more of us you put to death, the stronger we become. Because the world notices our example. We don't fight back. We don't complain. We don't grow bitter. We stand up in love for Jesus. And the result is more and more join our numbers. You cannot wipe us out. The more who die, the bigger we get. That's exactly what happened in history. Courage begets courage. I'll give you a more recent example. Some of you were alive when this happened, so you remember it in the news. Um, About 50 years ago, there were five young men who graduated from Wheaton College who who decided to be missionaries. And one of them was a guy named Jim Elliott. And they became missionaries to a a group called the Aka Indians in South America. And so they go to the Aka Indians with the gospel to tell them about Jesus. And the Aka Indians did not respond well. They murdered all five of them them, killed them all. You would think that that would shut down missions to the Auk Indians. It did not. It had the opposite effect. After them, for the next couple decades, thousands of young people went through Wheaton College and became missionaries because of their example. And some of them went back to that same tribe so that actually a lot of the Auk Indians became Christians. Courage begets courage, and Paul celebrates that. That's an incredibly good thing. God has brought good out of bad circumstances. Now, prison wasn't the only negative circumstance that Paul faced. The second half of the passage is about the the opposition Paul faced within the church. So people outside the church have thrown him into prison. People inside the church, some of them are being hostile to Paul. They're jealous of Paul. So look with me in verses 15 through 17. He says, some to be sure are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. So Paul's saying there's two groups within the church in Rome. Two groups. There's the good guys. And the good guys are believers who love Paul and love people who don't yet know Jesus. And so they're stepping up to fill Paul's shoes while he's in prison and they're taking the gospel and they're sharing it with anyone who will listen so that those people can come to know Jesus. That's awesome. Good motives, good actions. Then there's a second group. These are the bad guys. Now the significant thing is based on verse 14. These bad guys are believers also. Because Paul includes both groups in the brethren, the brothers and sisters. That's his way of talking about believers. These are believers who are trapped in envy. They're just, they're weighed down by envy. And as a result, they're going out and sharing the gospel, but they're doing out of selfish ambition to make themselves look good, to increase their influence. And we don't know exactly who these people are, but I have a guess the, the church in Rome was a little unusual in terms of all the churches Paul wrote to. He did not plant the church in Rome. Other people did. 
So you can imagine other people slaved away, worked really hard for years, lots of sacrifice to plant and build up the church in Rome. And it had really grown. It had really done well by the time Paul first shows up. And suddenly Paul, this great eminent apostle, shows up in Rome. And what does the whole congregation want to do? They want to go follow him. It's Paul. Apostle of the Gentiles. They want to listen to his sermons. They want to be with this guy. And I think some of the people who planted and led the church responded well, but some of them didn't. Some of them got jealous. Some of them got upset. What, you're running after Paul? What about us? They, they, they feel envy towards Paul. They feel jealousy. And so what do they do? They go out and, and share the gospel so everyone will look at them and say, wow, that's awesome that you're doing that. They want to increase their influence and diminish Paul's. Okay. Do we see that same kind of motivation in the church today? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's all around us. It's in us. So often, we believers, we do the right things for the wrong reasons. And often that wrong reason is what? It's, it's a desire to make ourselves look good. We, we, we want to do the right thing so people will notice. I've been guilty of that. I go do a righteous thing and I hope somebody will see it. So they'll think I'm a great guy. Well, that's what's going on in Rome. Believers are doing the right thing, sharing the gospel for the wrong reason, to make themselves look good. And Paul sees that. He sees believers going out and sharing the gospel out of jealousy, out of selfish ambition. And what does he do? He rejoices. Look at verse 18. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense, that's selfish ambition, or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. So Paul looks and he he sees believers preaching the gospel out of good motives. He sees believers preaching the gospel out of bad motives. And he says, I rejoice in all of it because to Paul, the only thing that matters is the gospel. It's being preached and so I rejoice. Now, we have to be very clear. Is it okay that those bad guys are preaching the gospel out of bad motives? Is God pleased by that? No. God will weigh our motives. Those guys will be held accountable when they stand before God for the jealousy and envy that they walked in. God will hold them accountable for that. God tells us clearly in the Bible, doing the right thing for the wrong reason is sin. It's still sin. However, Paul is not God. It's not his job to judge their motives. What Paul looks out and sees is that God is taking their bad motives and working something really good out of it. The gospel is still going out. And Paul says, that's all that matters. The gospel is being preached. That's why I rejoice. We'll let God figure out the whole motives thing. Let's rejoice that the gospel is advancing. That's really interesting to compare what Paul says here to what Paul says in the book of Galatians. Because in Galatia, there was kind of a similar situation going on. There were some teachers who were jealous of Paul. They wanted more influence. They wanted to diminish Paul. And so they went out and they preached the gospel, trying to get people to follow them. And Paul responds very differently to those guys. Here's what he says to the bad guys in Galatia. As we have said before, so I now say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. And accursed is just like a church polite way of saying damned. That's what the word is in Greek. Let them go to hell. And so you have to step back and say, well, wait a minute. So you've got people preaching the gospel out of jealousy in Rome. And Paul says, hey, I rejoice in that. You got these guys doing this out of jealousy. And Paul says, may you be damned. Why the difference? Because the guys in Galatia weren't just preaching out of bad motives. They'd done something else wrong too. What was that? They twisted the gospel. 
They had distorted the gospel. And we know background, historically, what was going on. They had come in, and, and there were all these Christians um, whom Paul had preached to. And they came in, and they, they heard about Jesus. And they said, you know what, Jesus, that's a good start, trusting in Jesus. But you know, that, that's not enough, right? Like, you've got to obey the Mosaic law, right? And so they began teaching people that Jesus wasn't enough for salvation. He was just half of the equation. You also had to obey, obey the Mosaic law, or you'll go to hell. And so, in other words, they took grace out of the equation. You got to have faith plus works. And by adding works back in, Paul says that is a damnable offense. Because you've just thrown out the grace of God. You've lost the gospel, and the gospel's all that matters. That's why there's such a different response. In Rome, when those guys are preaching, they're still preaching the one true gospel of the grace of God that Jesus died for our sins, rose from the dead, so we could have eternal life as a free gift, and you don't have to work for it. Paul says, as long as you're saying that, we're good. So Paul looks at these negative circumstances in his life, and he concludes that God is doing incredible things to move the gospel forward, and so I can rejoice. And so now we're kind of ready to step back and summarize what we have learned here, see what Paul is teaching us. I told you at the beginning this morning that what Paul's trying to do is turn our world upside down. He's, He's trying to help us look at our life and evaluate the circumstances in our life in a new way. So Paul was experiencing circumstances in his life that the world would say is really bad. He's in prison. He's got hostility from other believers around him. Looks like life is awful. And yet Paul says, I can rejoice in these difficult, painful circumstances because they're helping the gospel move forward. And that's all that matters to me. When you read this passage, it should really strike you how differently Paul evaluates life than we tend to. In fact, when my wife Julie first studied the book of Philippians many years ago, she read this passage and we were kind of talking about it and talking through it. And she said, you know, I feel like what Paul is telling us is that he looks at life through gospel colored glasses. Gospel color glasses. Think back to when you were a kid and you went to like the drugstore or Walmart and you bought those classes with like really, really bright lenses in them, like green or orange or pink, really crazy lenses. And you walked outside and you're looking outside and you put the glasses on and suddenly everything changes, right? Everything looks different. Those glasses change your view of the world. And, and Paul is saying that is how I view the world through gospel colored glasses. I put the gospel on over my eyes. I look through the gospel and it changes how I see everything and everyone. Those circumstances that seem awful, if they advance the gospel, I call them good. Those people who seem annoying or who the world tends to ignore, if it's about the gospel, then, then I see them and I love them. Paul sees life completely differently because he's looking at it through gospel-colored glasses. And, and that's really the key to this passage. He's challenging us to choose to put on gospel-colored glasses so that we see everything and everyone through the grid of the gospel. And when you do that, what you'll find is that sometimes circumstances that the world says are good actually aren't. Because what are circumstances that are good in the eyes of the world? They're those that make you feel comfortable. There are those that are, are pleasant. Well, Paul would say, yeah, if those circumstances distract you from sharing the gospel, then they weren't good. Because sharing the gospel is the only reason you're here. That's, that's why you're still on earth. 
So here's a practical example. When I was a student at Texas A&M, my first two years, freshman and sophomore year, I lived on campus in male-only dorms, and um, it was fine. Uh, it was loud, and it stunk a lot, and it was a little bit rowdy. And so I and some of my Christian friends from Grace, and in particular Matt Morton, one of our other teaching pastors, Chris Thompson, one of our other pastors, and a friend of our missionary named Nathan Sorrell, we four decided to go get an apartment our junior year. So we did. We got an apartment. And the nice thing about it, it was in a building where lots of other Grace people had apartments. So we had Grace people above us, across from us, beside us, all around. And so it sure seemed nice. I mean, it didn't smell. It was clean. It wasn't loud. It wasn't rowdy. It wasn't crazy. It had all these encouraging Christians around you. It seems like it would be really easy to say that is a purely good thing. That's an awesome thing. And at the time, I did. But as I've grown older and look back at that, I've realized, you know, it, it's not that simple. Was that a good decision? Well, I don't regret the decision. God was leading. I, I'm fine with it. But maybe it's not so simple to say, well, that's good because I was more comfortable. Because there were some negatives to that. You know the biggest negative? It's really hard to share the gospel when everyone around you already knows it. And the dorm, the university kept putting people next to me. I did not know. Just by random statistical chance, most of them are going to be unbelievers. And so, yeah, it's rowdy and stinky and crazy, but there's all these people around me that I'm living next to who won't come to church, but they can see Jesus in me. And I lost that when I moved off campus. And that realization helped me to see maybe circumstances that are pleasant aren't necessarily good. Maybe that's not necessarily what God wants for me. Maybe I need to see life a little differently. So when you look at life through gospel-colored glasses, you realize that circumstances the world would call good, maybe they're not. Conversely, you realize that circumstances the world calls bad, maybe they're actually good. In particular, when we think about bad circumstances, we're thinking about painful circumstances. We're talking about suffering. We're talking about suffering. Now, when the world looks at suffering, when the world looks at things that cause you pain, the, the conclusion is it is completely, absolutely awful. Completely bad, irredeemable. And what Paul's saying is actually those circumstances that are painful, that are hard, where you suffer, actually they can be used for good. That, that's what had happened to Paul. Paul would never say that prison was a comfortable thing, and yet God had used it for great good. God can do the same thing in our lives. But we have to think about this for a minute. We have to be really clear with our language. We have to think clearly about this topic. The first thing that we have to recognize is that suffering itself is never good. The Bible's really clear about that. Suffering is not good. How do I know that? Because in Genesis 1 and 2, when it's just the world as God intended it, what's not there? Suffering. God said, it's all very good. It is pleasant. It is wonderful. Adam and Eve are created in perfect bodies that never grow ill, never die. Everything is perfect and beneficial. God places them in a garden of endless delight. That's what God wanted. That's what God intended for us. Why do we suffer? Because we sinned. That's what brought suffering into the human race, not God. And so God doesn't look at suffering and ever says, that's good. He hates it. That's why you notice Paul never says, hey, prison is good. Jealousy is good. No. Persecuting people, having jealousy or envy, Paul would say, those are awful. Those are sinful things. Those are evil. So God wants us to be very clear. Suffering itself is not good. It, it is a product of sin. It is a product of of evil. We have to be clear about that. We have to be careful about that because sometimes I think we, we picture God in heaven just waiting for the next suffering he's going to allow into our lives to accomplish all of this good. That's not what God does. 
when he sees his children suffer. Do you want to know how God feels when you suffer pain? All you need to do is read the story of Lazarus. So the story of Lazarus is in the Gospels. Lazarus was a really good friend of Jesus. Jesus liked him a lot. And then Lazarus died. When Lazarus died, Jesus had special information because, you know, he's God. So he knew what was going to happen. Jesus knew that he would raise Lazarus from the dead and the result would be lots of glory to God. Lots of people would come to know God. It'd be amazing. It'd be incredible. And so Jesus traveled to where Lazarus had died and he enters in to the house where Lazarus's sisters are. And he sees Lazarus's sisters just weeping, just crushed by grief because their brother has died. And what does Jesus do? Does he say, hey, buck up, girls. I'm about to do something amazing. Just watch. Just come on. No. What does he do? He weeps. Even though Jesus already knew the great good he would accomplish in this moment, he weeps. That is how God relates to your suffering. He weeps with you. He grieves with you. And that's just important for us to realize. I know you guys know this, but when somebody comes to you who's just been diagnosed with cancer or he's just lost their job, you don't tell them, hey, rejoice, God's going to use it for good. Don't do that. No, instead, be like Jesus and weep with them. Recognize God hates cancer. God hates it more than you do. God hates unemployment. He hates everything that's broken with his perfect creation. And so God grieves with us in our pain. We should do that with one another. Grieve with one another in the suffering, in the pain. The suffering is not the good part. Never. Suffering is always bad. Here's what you rejoice in. That your God is big enough and wise enough to redeem the suffering for good. And what I mean by that is that God can take something that is evil and awful and in his great power and his great wisdom, he can bring incredible and unexpected good out of that bad thing. And that's the kind of thing that God has been doing for all of time, bringing good out of bad. You see that in Paul's story clearly. Paul is persecuted and thrown in prison, a purely evil thing. There's nothing good about throwing a guy in prison for following Jesus, and yet God brings shocking, unexpected good out of it. Jealousy and envy in the church, there's nothing good about that. Those are awful things. And yet God, shockingly, he brings this great good out of it. That's what God wants to do in your life. He doesn't want to call the pain good. Instead, what he wants to do is bring good out of it that you never saw coming. That's the great hope we have, is that we have a God big enough and wise enough to bring stunning, shocking levels of good, even out of the worst circumstances we experience. But there is a catch. One catch. It only happens if you respond rightly. Good only comes if you respond to that suffering rightly. You can't give in to self-pity and bitterness. And yet, for so many of us, that's what we naturally want to do, right? That's what the world does. When you suffer, especially unjust suffering like Paul was experiencing, what do we do? Well, we, we throw ourselves a pity party. We give in to bitterness. We get angry at everyone. We get angry at God. We, we give in to that self-pity and bitterness. We fall into ourselves until we're just not pleasant to be around. We're just trapped up in bitterness. And when that happens, you're no longer a light for Jesus. You're no longer advancing the gospel. That's really easy to think about in Paul's case. What if Paul would have responded to this unjust persecution, 
this imprisonment that he didn't deserve by giving into self-pity, by giving into bitterness and anger. Well, how much of the Praetorian Guard would have known about Paul? Very little. And those who did would just think, well, just another prisoner. It's like everybody else. There would be no benefit that would have come from that suffering. That suffering would have been wasted if Paul gave in to the temptation to, to be bitter and, and to give in to self-pity. By instead fighting back against bitterness and self-pity and choosing joy, choosing peace, choosing to trust God, choosing to fix his eyes on the guard next to him instead of on himself, that is where the miracle occurred. That is where God brought something world-changing to the city of Rome. He was the first guy that these soldiers encountered who was not bitter. And that blew him away. God can do the same thing in and through your life. You are going to suffer in this life. There's no way around that. We all do. You will suffer in one form or another. When you do... If you respond to that suffering by giving into the bitterness and self-pity that the whole world does, no one's going to notice that. No one's going to stand up and say, wow, I want to know your God. Your pain will have been wasted. It won't have done any long-term good. But if you'll resist that urge towards self-pity and bitterness and instead take your eyes off of yourself and your pain and look at the person next to you in love and with the truth of Jesus, then the world will say, wow, we have never seen that. Who is this you're talking about? God can work incredible good through your life if you choose to respond to pain like Paul did. The problem is that's incredibly hard. That's, that's, that's so hard, it's a miracle when we do it. And so what I want us to do with the remainder of time that we have is I want us to pray. I want us to ask God to work a miracle in us, each of us, so that when we suffer pain, when we suffer injustice, when we suffer, that we would not give in to the temptation to become bitter or, or give in to self-pity, but that instead... We would respond in faith and love and care more about the people around us. That's what will work a miracle in this world. So how do we do that? So I'm going to lead you in a time of prayer. I'm going to give you some time to pray. I think the first way that you respond rightly in moments of pain, moments of suffering, is you surrender your emotions, which you can't control, to God. And what I mean by that is when we talk about responding rightly to suffering, I'm not saying that you don't hate it. I'm not saying that you don't get angry. You can't control that. You don't have some switch you can flip don't be angry anymore it doesn't work that way if you look at the book of psalms you'll notice david's angry a lot and he's honest with god about that you can't control your emotions what can you do with them you can surrender them to god you can say god i i hate that this is in my life i I hate that this pain is here i hate that that this suffering is here i hate that this relational pain is here i hate that i have to experience this i'm mad about it but i lay it at your feet I lay it at your feet because I know you hate it more than I do. I believe that this is never what you wanted for the human race. You love me and you suffer and and grieve with me in it. And so I lay it at your feet and, and laying it at your feet, I trust you that you can work some kind of good out of this. That's what it looks like to surrender our pain and our suffering to God. So we're going to do that. We're, we're going to surrender the hard things in our life to God and the, and the anger and sadness that we have to God. We're going to surrender it to God and then we're going to ask God, God, will you work a miracle in me? Will you, will you save me from bitterness? 
that is springing up in my heart? Will you save me from self-pity that is my natural response to suffering? Will you miraculously save me from those things so that I can focus on the people next to me? So that they can see the love and the joy that Jesus can share. Can, can it be about them? Help me with that, God. Work that miracle, because we can't do it in our strength. Work that miracle so that, that this suffering can be the, the way that these men and women come to know you. And so we're going to pray that, and then we're going to pray for some men and women by name. And if you were here in May, you may recall we have these boards up here to remind you this morning. We wrote down names of people in our life who don't yet know Jesus. We wrote down those names to remind us to be praying that, that God would lead them to his son. And so at the close of our prayer time, the last thing we're going to do is we're going to pray for that person you wrote down. Pray for them by name. If you weren't here and you didn't write down somebody, that's fine. Think of somebody in your life who doesn't yet know Jesus. Pray for them by name that when they see you, they would see Jesus in you. And as a result, that they would be attracted to know more about him, that their eyes would be open to the truth of the gospel. Pray that God would use you to share the good news of the gospel with them. Okay, so let's take some time in prayer. I'll lead you as we go through. Heavenly Father, we praise you and we thank you that you are a God who, who is so powerful and so wise and so good that you can bring good even out of horrible situations. We praise you, God, that you don't rejoice in the evil. You don't rejoice in the suffering. Instead, in grace and in compassion, you weep with us. And then in power and wisdom, you bring good out of horrible things. We praise you that you've been doing that for for as long as time goes back. Thank you, Lord God, that we can trust you in the midst of that. But, Lord, right now we confess that it is hard when we suffer to turn it over to you. It is so much easier to give in to self-pity, to give in to bitterness. We need your help, God. And so right now we want to confess to you, we want to lay at your feet all the hard things in our lives, the things that we hate, the things that make us sad. We want to lay them at your feet, acknowledging that you hate them more than we do and that you love us in the midst of our struggles. So take the next few minutes and just lay before God all the hard things in your life. Lord God, we lay all of these hard things at your feet. We rejoice that you care more about us than we care about ourselves. You love us more than we love ourselves. You are good enough, compassionate enough, and big enough for us to trust you with all the hard things in our lives, including all of our emotions about those hard things, all of our anger, all of our frustration. We lay it all at your feet. And now we pray, Lord God, that you would work a miracle in our hearts, that when life is hard and when we suffer, we pray that through the power of your spirit that you would deliver us from the temptation to give in to self-pity and bitterness. We pray that you would rescue us from that selfish focus that looks only at ourselves and our pain and, and that instead you would work this miracle that allows us to see the people around us and to care more about them and to love them more even when we're in pain. 
We pray that you would work that miracle in our lives so that the world would see in us something different. We pray, Heavenly Father, that when we suffer, that, that you would work in us so that we would be like Paul, that, that we would be a light to other people so that they would come to know you and just be amazed at how good and loving you are. We pray that you would use us to lead many people to Jesus. And right now in particular, Lord, we want to lift up to you people in our own lives who don't yet know your son. Please, would you open their eyes so that they could see how beautiful and wonderful Jesus is. Take this time to lift people by name to him who don't yet know Jesus. Lord God, we rejoice that you desire the salvation of all people. We pray that you would save these friends and family in our lives who don't yet know your son. And we pray that you would use us. Help us to be available to you this week and in the weeks ahead to share Jesus' love in both words and deeds with each of these people. Thank you, God, that you are good to us. We praise you. We lift up your name. We pray help us to walk in faith this week. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys. Remember to be praying for the youth group and for Cardia.